Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Welcome back to season two of the Founders for Good podcast. We kick off this season with a guest that needs no introduction. He's one of the Tech for Good trailblazers that's led the way for others and shown what's possible when we use technology to create positive social change. He's won a number of awards, including Social Entrepreneur of the Year in 2022. Our guest is Alex Stephanie, founder and CEO of Beam. Beam used crowdfunding from individuals and businesses to support homeless people and refugees into jobs and accommodation. So far, they've partnered with the government, charities and employers to help over 1,000 people to get into jobs and homes across the UK. Alex shares his story, the current state of homelessness in the UK, how we can create true social mobility and much more in this episode. Hey Alex, honestly, uh, very excited to have you on the show today. Big fan of yourself and Beam uh, for, for a long, long time now. So um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Craig. Great to be here. Awesome. Um, so I uh, always start the same bit, just like a little bit of context. So could you just share a bit about your your background and more importantly, like any of the most like the key moments that have led you to um, founding a social impact business? Sure. So I've spent now just over a decade running small tech startups, but um, yeah, quite a split between the two because the first was a company called Just Park that is still going strong. Um, great business, parking app backed by Index Ventures and BMW, um, but you know, not really a, a kind of a social impact business, very much a kind of an online marketplace, quite classic VC-backed business. And then the second half is um, being the founder and CEO of Beam, which is a social impact business helping homeless people and refugees into jobs and homes using a lot of interesting technology uh, to do that. And how that all got started was I'd been at Just Park for more than four years. I'd taken the company from the two of us to sort of about 60 odd people. And um, I felt that, uh, I guess I felt a big itch to, to do something else. I'm a sort of curious person. Um, and I felt that people, I was meeting people and they were telling me about their different businesses and different startups. And, um, I was beginning to get excited by other ideas and I felt that I, um, couldn't kind of in good faith continue to run a business where I was beginning to get distracted by other ideas and my mind was beginning to get a little bit restless. Um, so I didn't know what that next thing would be. And I knew it was going to take me a long while to work it all out. So I left the business. Um, I spent a bit of time traveling, uh, doing some consulting and that sort of thing. Um, and I also spent a lot of time meeting people who I thought might be able to answer this question of what the heck do I do next? And so I spent, um, you know, days and days trawling through the offices of, you know, tech companies meeting kind of, you know, founders and VCs meeting, you know, fancy investors and so on. Um, kind of just sort of trying to scratch people's brains as to what I should do next and um, had some very interesting conversations, but that didn't really help me come to an answer. And then one day as I was uh, leaving my tube station, I uh, really kind of caught the attention of, of the, a homeless man 
um, and we sort of arrived, met, and uh, uh, we spoke for the first time. But I'd actually seen him before, truth be told. I'd walked past this guy probably dozens of times and always just been too busy to stop and talk. But this time, our eyes met and I thought, actually, I'm going to say hello to this guy. So um, we spoke. He told me about uh, growing up in Ireland, a lot of kind of tragic events that led him to the place where he was at um, then. And yeah, he was just sitting on the steps and we had a nice chat and off I went. And that was that. And then we we kept speaking, actually, as, as the weeks and months went by. I would bring him cups of coffee. I remember when it was getting towards winter, I'd bring him pairs of socks. Um, but then he just disappeared. And six or maybe seven weeks passed and I still just, you know, couldn't see him anywhere. But then finally the guy appears, actually. Um, but I barely recognize him because his big beard has gone and um, he looks like years older, you know, 10, 15 years old. And you know, frankly, he just looks pretty, pretty awful. And then, um, you know, I go up to him and I just say, what's happened? Where have you been? And he says, been in hospital. So what's what happened? He's had a heart attack. So, you know, we, we talk again and I say goodbye and I'm walking home and yeah, it just hits me very hard that nothing I've done to help this man has really made much of a difference. And in fact, he's in a much worse position months later than when I first met him, which was a pretty bad position to be in. So it just hit me really hard that there must be a better way. There must be something else I could have done. Um, and that is just an intolerable position, really, an intolerable situation when we are living in one of the wealthiest cities in the world and there are people literally dying sat outside tube stations. And so, you know, I really thought back to the very first time that we met and he told me that he'd been just out of work as long as he could remember. And, you know, it hit me really hard that clearly what this guy needed wasn't another cup of coffee, but it was actually the support, the skills, the confidence to get back into work and to put himself in a position where he could buy himself the socks and the coffees and the hundred other things that we all need. I thought, well, that's going to cost more than a few quid, but what if we all chip in? What if we could all get together and make effectively a life-changing investment in this man's future? Would that work? And maybe we could use crowdfunding. And I knew a bit about crowdfunding because I um, did what was actually the largest ever crowdfunding round for a startup when I was running Just Park. So I thought, I know a bit about that. Maybe this will work. But at the same time, I was very, very nervous that homelessness was a, uh, you know, a very complex problem that I knew very little about. And I was really coming to it for the first time. And it was also, of course, a problem that um, affects very vulnerable people. So the last thing I wanted to do was kind of, you know, wade in there like some tech startup bro who thinks he has all the answers and actually cause harm. So I spent a long time, maybe six months, meeting with uh, people who are working in homeless charities at all kinds of different levels, from the most junior to chief execs, meeting people who are experiencing different types of homelessness. So not only people who are on the streets, but people who are living in homeless hostels or women's refuges and trying to really understand the problems that they were facing. And during this process, uh, one of these charities said to me, Alex, you should go and meet this guy called Tony. So who's Tony? And she says, oh, he's a guy who lives in a homeless hostel in South London. He wants to be an electrician. 
So, okay, that sounds, sounds like an interesting guy to me. So off I go. I am sat next to this uh, guy in a hostel in South London. Uh, he is really just looking so depressed, so beaten up. And uh, I begin to learn about this man. He's been out of work for more than two decades. He's been a drug addict. He's been an alcoholic. He's um, estranged from almost all of his family. And unsurprisingly, there's not a lot to be happy about. But I explained to him, his name's Tony, that uh, I want to start a new project where we are going to raise money for people like him who want to get skills and get into work. And maybe we could help him to become an electrician. And uh, at this point, we have a very basic website that my friend, now our director of engineering, um, has built. And I do this, frankly, terrible pitch to, to Tony. And I just say, look, you can ask me you know, anything you like. If you've got any questions, anything unclear. He says, I don't understand. So what don't you understand? He goes, I don't understand. Why would anyone help me? And I have to honestly reply and say, look, I don't know that they will. I don't control what other people are going to do and say, but I believe there are a lot of people out there who do want to help. And I think that when we share your story, we're going to see that. And so he pauses and I go, look, I'm prepared to give this my best shot. And if you are, let's just see where we can get to. And I'll always be eternally grateful for him giving this a go. Um, because days later, we're off in this um, electrician training center. We're meeting the person who would teach him to become an electrician if we can raise the money. And I'm thinking, maybe we can't. You know, if we can't raise the money, I'm just going to pay for it myself because I'm not going to let this guy down. But, you know, I had as many question marks, um, probably more than, than Tony did. But we put Tony's campaign together. I then pick up the phone and um, I start pitching the story to journalists. And I say, look, there's a homeless man who wants to become an electrician and he's crowdfunding. And to my delight and surprise, it becomes this major global news story. It's covered everywhere, the BBC multiple times. Uh, he's in The Guardian, The Times, The Independent, Reuters. Um, it then gets picked up in various different um, TV and media outlets around the world. Uh, needless to say, we raised the money that Tony needed. It was about three and a half thousand pounds. He went and studied as an electrician. He got his City and Guilds accreditation. He got a job working uh, on uh, building sites, doing electrical work for big new construction projects. He began to do very well. He got promoted. He moved into his own home, reunited with his family, his relationships restored, in particular with his son, much improved. And uh, that all happened within six or so months. And then after that, I was just left reflecting. That was quite hard, but, you know, it is doable. It is solvable. And here was someone that had really been in a rut for decades that we could help quite quickly. And if we can help this person, what if we can help another hundred people? What if we could help a thousand people or a million people? Maybe society will look a lot better, a lot fairer if we can do that. And we haven't helped a million people yet, but you know we're we're on our way. We've helped now more than a thousand homeless people to get into jobs and homes. Uh, we're a service that is uh, right across uh, London. 
um, and also increasingly uh, available in cities all around the UK. We're in England, Scotland, and Wales. And we're working not only with um, homeless people, but increasingly with refugee groups. So we've been working um, to support Afghan refugees and Ukrainian refugees um, into housing. And um, above all, we've built a model that, you know, really, really, really works. So um, almost 80% of people using the service are starting jobs. On average, they've been out of work five and a half years. So it's an incredibly different candidate profile to the sort of people you're working with every day, Craig. And um, what I think we've seen is that though they may have, you know, less, uh, less impressive CVs and less recent work experience and fewer qualifications and all these things, you know, if people are given the chance, they, you know, more often than not rise to that challenge. And one of the really interesting aspects of this model is this crowdfunding. So I'll, I'll talk briefly about um, how that works and then let you ask your second question or else it's going to be a one question podcast. <laughs> uh, the way we work is we partner with government. They refer people to us. Uh, we give each of those people a caseworker who understands all the risks in their life and helps them to build a campaign. Then anyone out there in the world, and hopefully you, if you're listening to this now, goes to beam.org and you support people. You can either pick someone to support or you can uh, donate monthly. And each month we share uh, someone's profile with you. And when people donate, they often leave a nice little message of support. And all of these messages are passed on to the individuals using Beam. And they are just utterly transformative in how people perceive themselves. And um, once the campaign is funded, the, the person works with their caseworker to, to, to get into a job or get into a home. And we have um, teams at Beam who work to build relationships with employers and also to build relationships with landlords. So there's also a kind of you know marketplace, if you will, of landlords and, and employers, and we use um, those to match up with our with our members and and yeah, make sure that we have the right home and the right job for them. Because it's not just about a job or a home; it also really needs to work for people. As we all know, uh, there's one thing being in a job, and there's another thing being in the right job. And I've many times in my career, I've um, I've been in the wrong job, and that's been pretty bad for the company and pretty bad for me too. Um, so it's so important to, yeah, make sure there's that fit. Definitely. And lots and lots to unpack there, but like, I, I don't think anyone can, um, like not listen to your story and, and that journey. And it just doesn't touch them on like a human level. Like, I, I don't think anything feels as powerful as like helping another human being like in need, uh, especially like you said, those are super vulnerable, probably, you know, have zero confidence, been knocked down again and again, and just at a point where they just don't believe no one really cares, or wants to help them and actually giving them that back is probably yeah. the most powerful thing you could do possibly. Um, to, um, to zoom out for a second and just talk about the, um, you know, homelessness, uh, as, as a, as a, as like a topic, um, can you give an idea of like, what, what is the current, um, like state of homelessness in the UK, if that's like portion of the population or number of people like living out on the streets. Um, and I assume with stuff yeah. like cost of living, inflation, that's when you're going to get worse, sadly. Yeah. So one important thing to understand is that the people who are homeless that we see on the streets are just the tip of the iceberg. And so the vast majority of people who are legally homeless in the UK are in some type of emergency accommodation that might be a hostel or that might be a refuge um, and that's a really kind of ramshackle 
long list of all kinds of different types of buildings that have been repurposed for people. Um, so that's, you know, what that means is that bad as we think homelessness is, and although we see maybe the sharpest end of it on the streets, um, we see but a tiny sliver of homelessness in general. So um, overall, more than 300,000 homeless people in the UK, more than 100,000 children who are living in some type of emergency accommodation. Uh, All of the data that we have, unsurprisingly, sadly, tells us that those children will uh, perform worse academically, will uh, suffer from worse health. Um, And it's a problem that uh, has been with us uh, for, you know, a very, very, very long time. Um, And, you know, my view is that it's about time we made some serious progress um, on these problems. Uh, But yeah, you know, one way to visualize it is there are more homeless people in the UK than the population of Brighton. So we have a kind of, you know, a meaningful city in the UK that is, you know, that, that order of magnitude. And to your point, Craig, around cost of living, um, yes. So unfortunately, that is likely to be the outcome uh, of, of the cost of living crisis. Uh, there are millions of people who are teetering on the brink of homelessness. And, uh, you know, our fear is that uh, a lot of them do become homeless um, in the next, um, you know, year or two, um, unless we can really get ahead of the curve. And I think that's going to require a, a big, big team effort um, from from the government, uh, from communities. Um, and I also think that businesses and startups have a part to play too. And, you know, one of our views on, I guess, one of our philosophical views on, on social issues like homelessness is that they are everyone's responsibility and that um, saying it's the government's responsibility or uh, it's down to homelessness charities or, or whatever, whatever it is, is, is never going to work. Uh, actually, we need a true kind of collaborative and multi-stakeholder approach to solving these problems. And that's how we have approached it at Beam. So uh, we have, yeah, the government who are commissioning the service. We have the community donating, sending messages. We have landlords housing. We have employers employing people. And I think we've seen that when you create clarity over the role people need to play and you make it easy for them to play that role, you know, fundamentally, there are a lot of people who want to be positive actors and who want to be part of a, of, you know, real progress on issues. 100%. And, and, you know, I think no matter what the problem is, like I've had guests talk about climate change, food waste, education, there's multiple layers that these things need to be attacked on. And uh, government is one that can people can default to. And I think the government's great for long-term change, but it's also quite a slow acting process for those changes to happen with the government. And everyone I speak to kind of comes with the same thing is like, the biggest impact we can have is as individuals and businesses, like collective action on that level will likely have the biggest impact possible and the fastest. Um, so totally agree. And, and I think like you just touched on more and more people want to be doing good. And it's also, it's sometimes just knowing how to do, to do good. So having things like Beam there actually just makes it super easy for someone to do good and do their part. Um, because before Beam existed, like what, what were the options what what existed in the way of like trying to help people in in those situations like was it just purely like charities and small small organizations trying to do their bit i mean there are about a thousand 
charities who either work exclusively or partly on homelessness in the UK. I think Beam is the only, I guess, sort of major example of a tech startup that is using technology um, as a kind of a big part of the solution to these problems. And obviously there's the crowdfunding technology that um, you can see kind of pretty clearly on Beam.org, but the vast majority of what we're focused on building is either technology for um, our team. So it's for caseworkers and that is allowing us to do lots of complicated operationally operationally complicated things, um, yeah, more efficiently. Um, but it's also building technology for the people using the service. So we make sure that they have smartphones and they can do things like uh, join video appointments with their caseworkers and see jobs that are suitable to their, um, for their experience and, and other match them on other requirements and things like that. So I think what we're doing is, is, is yes, pretty, pretty unusual. Um, and I guess that really speaks to why I was so motivated to do it because I think that there are a lot of people in startups working on similar things and there is quite a lot of groupthink, unfortunately. And I don't think that's particularly efficient use of kind of, you know, human time or financial capital to be like, you know, overlapping uh, our efforts so, so much. And also just, I couldn't get that excited to do it personally. You know, my personal drive is to be useful and, I just couldn't be excited to work on a, you know, a banking app that was going to be a little bit better in on these features than something else that exists and is, you know, pretty damn good. Um, I think that just that just doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. Whereas the fact that these are such overlooked problems in the technology sector, at least, um, I think gets you know me and all of the team really excited. We know that we're shipping features that just don't exist at all. We're not trying to improve something that is already pretty excellent. We're, we're, we're going from zero to seven, zero to eight on so many of the features that we ship. Yeah. And I guess that's the difference is that you have that, that you mentioned before this, like thousand charities all doing really great work, but their area of impact's probably fairly small and local. But what you've managed to do with Beam is, is create scalable impacts and almost like a tech layer that actually enables a lot of these different places and organizations to fit together in a more efficient way to help more and more people. Um, absolutely. Amazing. So um, I know you've already explained what Beam do. Um, so I just wanted to kind of dig into that um, that model a little bit more, and, and to begin with, just look at it from the uh, the experience or journey of the the homeless person. So I know you mentioned that they get referred to you; they'll be assigned a caseworker. I just wanted, like, from that point onwards, like in terms of like, you know initial consultation, um, choosing what might be the right role for them. Is that something that they will generally come to you with an idea of, I want to be an electrician or a plumber or whatever it might be? Or is it a case of you have like a list now of, of approved partners, trainers, training companies you work with? And it's like his list of, I don't know, hundreds or hundreds of options that could be relevant that you can choose from. It will vary. So some people have a pretty clear idea of what they uh, would like to do and what they can do. And it's realistic. Um, other people, you know, may come with an idea that is just not going to be achievable and you need to have a, you know, a sensitive conversation around the fact that you need to set a achievable goal. And then maybe that's a better long-term ambition. Um, Other people, um, and I would say this is probably the majority, come with, you know, very limited sense of uh, what the right next step is for them. 
And that may be because they've been out of work for a long time. As I mentioned, you know, on, on average, people have been out of work more than half a decade. It might be because they are a refugee from a, you know, from a different country and they just don't understand the UK or they don't understand the labor market or the types of jobs here. It might be because they're a young person and, you know, they've not really worked in their life and they've had a very chaotic youth. It's all kinds of different reasons. And, um, one of the things we think about a lot is, you know, how you design conversations that uh, are both creating space to understand what it is that people um, want to be doing, but are also giving them the appropriate level of guidance. Yeah, makes makes sense. And the the relationship with the the caseworker, like once I guess that they're in that um, situation where hopefully they've they've got a place to live, they have um, an employment, like a new job that they're they're loving, and it fits well with them what they're looking for. At what point does the relationship with the caseworker kind of start to transition out, or is it an ongoing thing? It's just the regularity of it gets further and further out to make sure that they still feel like that support's there if they need it. Yeah, so we stay in touch with them after they get the job. Um, and, um, uh, we check in with them at three months, at six months, but the frequency of the check-ins will be greater if they need more support. So, you know, one of the reasons I think why I've had a lot of success is because we are a very personalized service. There'll be some people that, um, are quite able to help themselves if you give them the right tools and there are other people that need a lot more handholding and that will always be the case. And so what, I think you need to solve these problems well at scale is you need technology that makes things as efficient as possible, but you also need human beings who can also understand the complexities of other human beings and who can be highly adaptable in how they work uh, with different types of people. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, you need, you need both of those elements. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Completely. Completely. And and then, yeah, I'm a being customer. I have been for a while. big fan um and um yeah one of the things that i think you do really well is like the storytelling and i think with any kind of like impact product especially where it's like a crowdfunding model or like um you know, donating money to do good the thing that has to be done really well is like the clarity of your impact and how that money's being spent um i know how that works because i see it but i just wonder if you could explain to listeners like how you communicate the impact that donators have with, with the money that they're they're donating to being yeah sure so um People go to the website, which is beam.org. They can uh, donate to an individual campaign um, or they can give each monthly. You give each month and each month we send them an email introducing them to the person that they are funding that month and they can click. They can meet that person, read their story, find out about them. um, And as that person uh, posts updates, they get those updates through to them. And it's... um, a really, really nice thing for people to see the impact that their money is having. And, you know, the vast majority of these individuals are uh, going on to achieve their goals, whether that's getting into a home or getting into a job. And I think that feels amazing for the people who are funding them. 
Um, you know, we spend a lot of money on, you know, bits and bobs that give us no real pleasure or meaning in our life and people giving a fiver a month to be, I don't think anyone regrets, um, that fiver in terms of, you know, what it does for them in terms of, you know, their sense of purpose, their well-being as well. And then we also have a page called the impact page where we group, um, all of that impact together. And, um, you know, that's a page like beam.org forward slash Craig or beam.org forward slash Confido. And that lists out all of the people that you're funded and it shows transparently how many people are got into jobs and houses. And we also show, um, again, to be transparent as possible, the number of people who have um, come off the platform or have not unfortunately made it because we are clearly working with a you know, complicated group of people who have many challenges, often many years of um, addiction and mental health problems behind them. And, you know, this won't sadly work 100% of, of the time, but we think it's really important to be transparent about that. So we represent that as just a number and make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're clear with supporters that, um, you know, this is a highly, highly effective model, but it, it doesn't have a 100% success rate. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and transparency is key. And, and secondly, like, yeah, I, what I love is, is I see kind of like the actual people that the donations are going towards, like the, the person, the name, their their goals, what they're trying to achieve and how that's like, we've done our little bit in helping them. So I think just making it feel that real makes a huge difference. Um, it's a really complex business. Like there's a lot of moving parts because you're having to, you have to coordinate with a lot of different organizations to make this all come together. And you already touched on earlier, you mentioned kind of a lot about tech and I've heard you talk on other podcasts about, um, you know, one of the things that best things that came out of the pandemic from Beam's perspective was, um, the investment in tech, if I've got that right, like it, has that been the biggest game change when you look over the course of Beam so far and what's allowed the business to really grow and become more scalable? Has, has tech been the main key or has it been something else? I mean, I think ultimately it's, it all comes down to people and culture because that's really your engine for growth. Um, and people and culture comes down to your values and, and how well you, you live them. Um, the pandemic was useful because that I think opened people's minds to what can be done with digital for disadvantaged groups. And one of my, I guess, frustrations with the tech sector is that we've just poured so much time and money into building for very privileged people like me. And I'm frankly fine with, you know, Deliveroo and Airbnb and I'm sorted in my opinion. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it's not a good invest investment of, 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 you know, scarce resources we have in the world to, you know, further improve services for people who, who have them pretty damn good. Um, but there has been this enormous, enormous omission, which is to provide digital services for people who are very disadvantaged in our society. And, you know, if you are a, uh, you know, if you're Alex Stephanie, you know, I can, I can pick up my phone and I can, you know, get whatever I, Fan, you know, reasonably need very quickly and it's a slick and seamless experience. But if you are a, you know, homeless single mom with your kids in some type of emergency accommodation and there is mold all down your walls and your kids are crying and you have no money and you desperately need to get to a safe and stable house to raise your family, like this is pretty useless actually. Um, or if you're a refugee who is sleeping on the streets of London, this is pretty useless. And, um, there is an exciting, I think 
opportunity now, which is that actually these things are increasingly common. And five, 10 years ago, certainly, you know, people would have, I think, rightly said, you know, this isn't going to make sense. People don't have phones. You know, we shouldn't be investing in these services. Like that, those days are almost entirely behind us now. And even if people don't have phones, the cost of phones have fallen so, so much that it is, it is, you know, you know, you are able to provide phones um, super easily. And that's what we do at Beam. And it makes complete sense. You know, one of the obvious wins to actually create social mobility is to give everyone a phone. Because if you have a phone, you can access so many other things. If you don't have a phone, you're just locked out of so much. So, you know, I think creating that digital inclusion is increasingly a kind of a precursor to creating social mobility. And, you know, that's why uh, we believe in trying to bring people into the digital world rather than uh, designing non-digital uh, services and processes that kind of keep them out of them. Now, of course, it's tempting to say, well, look, this person doesn't understand technology because they're, uh, you know, an older person or they didn't grow up with it or, or for whatever different reason, um, you know, we should serve them non-digitally. And of course, that's very tempting. But the reality is that we are in a digital world where technology is ubiquitous. And if that individual is going on to get a job, they cannot simply ignore technology. And so, the harder but better solution, we believe, is to work with people and give them the tech skills, however much time that takes, however much investment that takes. And so not only do we equip people with the hardware that they need, we also run sessions that, um, you know, with a great deal of patience are providing the technology skills for people so they can first and foremost use the Beam service. And that provides a kind of dry run where people can begin to you know, develop their digital skills and confidence but then also, you know, they're ready for that, you know, for that outside world whenever they get a job, because, you know, as I'm sure you know yourself, Craig, you know, whatever you're doing these days, you could be a carpenter. Um, but if you're a carpenter, you are getting your jobs through your phone. You are dealing with queries through your phone. You're speaking to your boss through your phone and you don't have that job if you can't use a phone and you're not certainly not able to hang on to that job if you can't use your phone. So there just is no alternative but to give people the the digital skills they need to survive and thrive. Yeah, <clears throat> makes makes a lot of sense. And um, in terms of the the beam, sorry, beam like uh, the way the company was formed, it's a social enterprise, right? And I just wondered if um, you know most still most companies I speak to and we interview on this podcast are like for good and for profits. So they're more kind of standard limited companies. So I just wondered, can you explain like what a social enterprise is and how that slightly differs in terms of like how the company is run? So yeah, social enterprise is a term that is used a lot, but it's also quite an unclear term because social enterprises can relate to lots of different types of organization. So some uh, registered charities that are trading would call themselves social enterprises because they're sort of generating revenue uh, from trading activities rather than just asking for, you know, taking donations. Um, equally, you have some uh, businesses that are social enterprises and you have all kinds of other types of, you know, unusual corporate entity that also might be social enterprises as well, like community interest companies would be one of them. So it's quite a confusing landscape. It's quite a kind of umbrella term, social enterprise. I think, you know, what it really encompasses is an organization that has a social mission and is also approaching that in a um, commercial way. 
And what Beam actually is from a, a legal perspective, and I want to be as uh, transparent about this as possible, it's a kind of a combination of two different types of entity. So when people are donating on the website, their donations are going to a ring-fenced bank account, which is the bank account of a registered charity. So there's a UK registered charity called the Beam Foundation, and that allows us to get gift aid um, when people donate. So that's a good thing. Obviously, we can lift up people's donations by by 25%. Now, we have a 100% giving model. So all of the donations going to that charity are spent on the things that people need. Now, that means things like childcare and employment training and transport and tools and all kinds of other things. Now, um, of course, if 100% of the money is going there, uh, we need to find a way to actually pay for the service itself. And we have a team of 70 plus people. So you know, that's hundreds of thousands of pounds every month. So the way we've solved for this is to have a for-profit, which I call a social impact business, which is a different entity. And that entity is able to do all of the things that companies can do to help itself scale. So for example, it's able to go and raise money from investors in a way that charities can't. You know, we did that and that has helped us hire more people and hire better people and and, and grow the company. Um, and the company also uh, does work with government and that again helps us pay for the actual service. So for example, doing work to support Afghan refugees, that will be a piece of government work that we do to support Afghan refugees. So what we've tried to do, Craig, is put together um, and really bring together, I'd say, the best of both worlds. It's the, the the governance layer and tax efficient giving of a charity, but also the sort of scalability of a company. And I think that it's working in as much as on that sort of scalability point. You know, we're helping now more homeless people get into jobs any month than any organization in the country, either, you know, companies or charities. And, you know, some of the, the charities who've been working on the, these problems are, have been around for, you know, 60 more years than us and have, you know, a lot more income coming in at the top. So I think we managed to, to, to make this balance work well. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the long story. But yeah, yeah, short story, you're donating to a registered charity, but uh, if you're working at Beam, then you're working for a social impact company. Yeah, super, super clear. Um, and then finally, to, like our last bit on Beam is just like looking ahead. Um, yeah, you do a huge load of good work, but I'm sure that's not where you want it to stop. So like what, what's what's in the roadmap for the next couple of years? Like, is it starting to expand outside the UK? Is it looking at finding different sets of services? Like what's, yeah, what's coming up? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, both of those things. So we talk about two types of expansion. We talk about demographic expansion and geographic expansion. And demographic expansion is working with lots of other groups. So um, we started supporting homeless people, but we've now expanded to support refugees. We're also really interested in helping other groups like people who've been in prison and people with disabilities. And we've seen that lots of different types of people can benefit from our service and they already have because as you can imagine, you can't kind of draw neat lines around these social problems. They will bleed into each other and you have many homeless people who've been in prison and you have you know, refugees with disabilities and so on. And you know, we've seen that the challenges people face are actually highly overlapping and that we have this huge ability to help so many groups beyond the homeless. And then the second piece is that geographic expansion and there's nothing like Beam in the world at the moment. And 
we think we can make a huge positive contribution to supporting marginalized groups uh, in all kinds of different cities and countries around the world and yeah, have some really interesting conversations with cities outside the UK who've got in touch, who've seen what we're doing, um, who I think want to see more innovation and more results in terms of the services supporting disadvantaged people in their communities. Amazing. And I can't wait to see it. Um, to talk to yourself a little bit about more you on a personal level as like a founder and, and like your journey, um, what's what, what do you find hardest as a founder? Like what do you find most challenging in your role at Beam? Like is it not being able to go fast enough? Is it um, when you see people that do kind of fall off um, throughout the process? Like what, what do you yeah, find hardest? I mean, a million things. Everything is, you know, almost everything is hard. Um, yeah. But that's, I guess, why I like it. I like challenge um i think if anything was if something was easy i would get bored pretty pretty easily um but you know the the obvious answer to that is that there are you know it's it's very it's always very very hard to be focused on uh you know on finding the right things to focus because whatever you are doing at that time you are also not doing a hundred other things and I think every founder struggles with the fact that, you know, they could clone themselves 50 times and they would still be busy. And that's exciting and somewhat addictive, but it's also frustrating. Um, and it's a continual challenge to find that focus. You know, we've just done a bit of a core values revamp and um, one of our new values is we've been with energy and focus. And I think it's a really great exercise, uh, you know, for all founders to be doing is just like constantly to check their focus is on the right things. And that means, yeah, not doing a lot of things, saying no to a lot of things. Um, so I think that's, um, yeah, you know, that's probably my biggest day-to-day challenge. And then I'd also say, you know, finding the most exceptional people is, is, is really hard as well. You know, it's easy to hire a team of, you know, a hundred, you know, decent people. It's really hard to hire a team of 100 utterly exceptional people. And, we are really, really passionate about finding utterly exceptional people. Um, we hire about one in 200, one in 300 um, people who apply to Beam. So it, it is quite hard to, to get into the company. Um, but, you know, we put an awful lot of energy into that and we're always trying to kind of raise the bar. And, you know, we we try and make sure that every person we hire is you know better than the people we hired, you know, a year ago or two years ago and the people within the team are committed to doing that as well. You know, uh, there's a lot of humility in the team as well. People don't want to be the best. People want to work with people who are better and smarter than that. You know, my hope is that I'm the dumbest per- person at being one day. Um, maybe I already am, and that would be a great mark of my success. So, you know, that continual like raising of bar, continuing to like have that hunger to find out that, you know, to seek out the greatest talent, wherever it is. Um, and, you know, some of that talent, um, looks like traditional great talent because it has, you know, fancy names on the CV, but a lot of it doesn't. Um, and you know, that makes it even more challenging because it's harder to, to find those profiles that, um, haven't, you know, haven't had that experience at these, you know, prestigious organizations, but there's so many brilliant people out there, um, who, you know, who we should be speaking to. And, you know, we found a good number of people like that already. Um, some of these people have lived experience of the social problems that, you know, we've been working on because they've been homeless or they've been in the criminal justice system. Um, but I think, you know, 
that is, is an additional challenge. And you know, a lot of companies are a bit lazy about how they hire. They just take a kind of tick box approach and they look for certain names and they hire as quickly as they can without a lot of thought. And, you know, if someone's been at Google or whatever it is, you know, get them in. Um, but, you know, we like to uh, be a bit more thoughtful about it than that. And yeah, that's hard because it ends up, you know, you end up looking at an awful lot more people um, and having to, you know, just work a lot harder to, to, to build the team that you want to build. Definitely. And I was, and it's one of the questions I was going to ask actually is like now Beam is becoming more and more high profile. I mean, it has been for a while, but now it's like a very high profile social, social impact business. Do you find that naturally the, the kind of people that are applying or interested in work for you are actually really mission aligned? So, so, cause when I speak to founders, I call it for two things. It's like mission alignment, like people are really passionate about solving that problem. And then two, it's the skills, competencies, abilities to come in and, and like you said, raise that bar. And you find actually number one, the mission alignment actually now is, is pretty high. Like most people probably know what Beam is, knows what you're doing, they're applying for the right reasons. So actually then it's trying to, it's really focused on that skill assessment. So it's getting harder and harder because <laughs> you've already got really good cultural matches coming through. So then it's like really trying to just zero in on those tech, like hard skills, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the types of people that want to work for, you know, very small companies and small companies and medium sized companies differ. Um, and that's always going to be the case. Um, I think it is helping that our profile is growing, uh, today, for example, LinkedIn, uh, included us on their list of top 15 startups in the UK, which was very kind of them. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we are seeing that as the profile grows, yeah, more and more people are applying from, you know, quote unquote top companies. Um, and that wasn't the case for the first, you know, couple of years, you know, We'll get applications all the time from you know, McKinsey, Google, Uber, Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's exciting and flattering. And, you know, we need to make sure that we're hiring people like that for the right reasons rather than because they have a brand name on their CV. Um, I think, you know, it's not a problem for us to find people who are passionate about the problems we solve because I think so many people are and so many people are looking to do work with purpose and you know our pitch to candidates and you know maybe there are some people listening to this now who you know are thinking about where they're going to take their career now or in the next few years is join a company that uh, has all of the excitement and dynamism of a tech startup but where you can also do really really world-changing work that i think will be the stuff that you're you know proudest of in your career um or very much up there so that's our, you know, pitch to candidates, you know, join a company with a great culture that's truly exciting, but do work that matters because life is short and, you know, who knows where any of us are going to be, um, you know, six months, a year, 10 years from now. And, uh, I don't think any of us want to look back and regret that we spent years of our life working on things that just didn't really matter that much. Um, and I think more and more people are exhibiting a kind of carpe diem or impatience to just get on with it, you know, build, build their careers and the, take their careers and their lives in the direction that they want to take them now. And I think that COVID has been a huge, uh, I guess, kind of catalyzer almost in that respect. It's really, you know, all this time cooped up, um, led people, I think, to, you know, question some of their most fundamental, uh, 
aspects of their life. I mean, do I want to be doing this type of work in this company? Do I want to be, you know, living in this city, in this relationship, blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of people are moving out of jobs that are not doing anything for their soul, frankly, um, and are looking at opportunities um, where, uh, you know, they can be doing work that speaks to them. And, you know, if, if we can pull talent out of those companies and, you know, get great people working on problems that I believe, you know, really matter to, to societies around the world, then, um, yeah, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, and that's definitely the thing that I see. Like I'm, I have a more primary focus on like the product and tech space. And I think these are people that are very privileged, like good salaries, flexible working, um, all the, you know, all the things there that they need, but the big thing now they're all missing and, and focusing more on is like, what am I actually doing with my time? Like, am I using my skills to do some good in the world? And, and that's what everyone now is focused on is, is yeah, using those skills to do some good, um, which is hopefully something we just see more and more of. Um, so I guess on that, I, I know obviously Beam's continuing to grow, you're hiring. Um, worth saying that, you know, anyone listening in that's interested, check out the careers page on the Beam site and um, I'll put a link in, in the podcast notes. Um, Alex, for anyone just interested in following the Beam journey, uh, where are you most active on socials? Are these yourself individually or the, the company? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, we're at We Are Beam. Just, yeah, you can find us there and yeah, please stay in touch. And yeah, check out our careers page. It's beam.org forward slash careers. We have uh, at least 14 open roles at the moment. And if there isn't a role that is a fit for you and you are excited by what we're building, just drop us an email. Yeah, 100%. People, check it out and apply. <laughs> um, well, Alex, look, thanks so much for coming to the show. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of you and Beam, so I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Craig, and also really appreciate Confido getting involved and supporting our work. And I know that you have helped. Yeah, by now I'm just going to look it up because I've got it in front of me. It's beam.org forward slash Confido Talent. Um, so yeah, supported uh, 21 people um, through the Beam platform. And yeah, I want to thank you for getting involved as well and, and making sure that your company has a great impact. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time. <laughs>